Okay, right. Just while you're filling in that, um, just just starting gently, just a bit by way of introduction um, to, to the afternoon. What I'm not going to try and do is is give answers, and um, I'm always reminded of that bit in, in in Job where his his three friends trot up to give him all these answers, and the, the first thing that happens is they see him there, having lost his job, having lost his wealth, having lost his health, having lost his family, sitting in a pile of ashes, and they 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 went to comfort him with what they thought were their answers. And actually, all they could do was sit down for seven days in silence. Um, I'll just, I just read a little bit from, from 2 Corinthians, because it's not our comfort we're, we're coming with. It's not um, clever psychological answers, although I do think there are a couple of techniques, and we'll try and do those. But just a little bit here from, from 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. And I think that's one of the really key things for for CAP is that we're not passing on our comfort or our clever answers. We're primarily passing on God's comfort. And he's got an unquenchable well of comfort there that always contains enough comfort for people. And that kind of comfort is better than our comfort or or trying to come up with answers of any kind and sometimes there aren't answers um, I was talking to Stephen over lunch you know what do you do with a man who has a complete income given every benefit in the world of 114 pounds who spends 121 pounds on rent there is no debt counseling solution to that all there is is perhaps comfort and a bit of advice but you know at the end of the day that, that there are not human answers to that and that's just one of, of many examples so bearing in mind that the strength we have does, does come from God, and that actually is a massive advantage that, that, that you have perhaps over people who are not Christians, that we have access to Christ's comfort. Given that, there are some ideas and things that we can briefly talk about which I think might be useful. And one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is how people get into stressful situations, perhaps to the point where they're talking about suicide. Why is it that some people who come to CAP are just want help with their debt, and are maybe a bit unhappy, but other people are actually talking about suicide. And obviously one of the things is thinking, well, is there, has this got to the point of clinical depression or not? Is that a driving factor? And I was defining clinical depression a bit earlier as being a a depression that affects your body, that begins to affect your sleep, your concentration, that kind of thing. Um, So some of those bodily symptoms that we had on the previous slide also perhaps a step change or a change from how the person normally was. Uh, you know, some people have never been the happiest. They've always been a bit unhappy. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the puddle glum character in the Narnia. People say, it's a sunny day. He'll say, most likely rain tomorrow. You know, I mean, there are some people who do have a slightly negative bias on life. Um, but the kind of things we're perhaps seeing in depression is someone who perhaps was absolutely fine two years ago and now is grossly depressed. And that there's been a substantial change um, affecting the body and mind, I've said. We're not just talking about spiritual depression. Um, whenever I start talking about depression, people always say, have you read Martin Lloyd-Jones' book entitled Spiritual Depression? I mean, it's a very interesting book, but and Martin Lloyd-Jones probably did actually suffer from clinical depression as well. But that book is about spiritual depression and separation from God, the sort of thing that, that Jeremiah and Daniel and the kind of thing they experienced about, you know, walking through the valley, that, that kind of thing. It's not about clinical depression. It's not about loneliness. It's not about unhappiness. And perhaps a key thing for me is the person who's unable to think themselves out of it. Um, If people are going through a bad day, they can kind of say things like, well, things things will move on. Things will turn around. But I think by the time the person's got into the point where perhaps they're clinically depressed, they're just beyond that point. It's, okay, well, it got better before, but then it got bad again and then it got bad again, and then it always gets bad again. And they're they're sort of very much into this very black and white, negatively predictive thinking. And they can't think themselves out of it. Um, So saying things like snap out of it or, you know, always look on the bright side of life kind of of thing is is, is not helpful because they can't. Because if they could, they would have done by now. Um, A simple way, now I hope this isn't teaching grandmother to suck eggs. This is not complex. The aim of this is not to pretend that you don't know it, it's just to give you a language for it. But the idea that that life is a balancing act and we all have demands 
and resources that operate in our lives. And for the most part, hopefully, we have more resources than we have demands. And there's internal resources like perhaps a stable upbringing or self-esteem, um, external resources like perhaps a job or, or, or money is very important or a family around you. Um, external demands like the red rent bill and internal demands such as perhaps an overcritical personality, things like that. And hopefully those things balance out. And from time to time, they get a little bit worse. Um, do that on the next slide. But, you know, I know what my sort of early warning signs are. And I'm getting a bit stressed, doing a bit too much. But hopefully I know enough to sort of take some of the demands off myself. Uh, also, perhaps we know how to go about and get some more resources. But if we spend too much time in that demands greater than resources situation, too much time stressed, if you like, what happens after a while is that stress only can be lasted for so long. It's a bit like an animal only has so many fat stores for hibernating the winter. It can cope with three or four months of the year when there's snow on the ground, where there's no food and it's still got to burn off calories, but only for so long. And there comes a time where the seesaw has been tipped for long enough that there's consequences to that. And as a psychiatrist, I might say, well, that's when maybe chemicals in the brain might change and antidepressants might be useful. Or um, from a behavioral point of view, you might see unhelpful cycles of behavior rather than maintaining cycles of behavior. Um, or there may be consequences, you know, on lay terms, we just call it a nervous breakdown or something like that. I don't know what a nervous breakdown is, but it's, it, it's quite a good word because it basically describes that you've got to the end of, you know, the jar is now empty of biscuits. You've been living off the biscuits for a while and the jar is now empty. But there are stages you can spot in that. Um, and the first thing that happens is that you get, get warning signs. I mean, I, because I have a fairly stressful job and also I tend to do things like this and I'm fairly, fairly busy, not, not too busy, not as busy as I used to be, actually. But I do know exactly what my warning signs are. If I get a little tension headache here or if I wake up in the middle of the night for more than two nights running, I know I'm doing too much. I know exactly what that is and I will make some changes. But So I think we need to know what our warning signs are. Often people either don't know what their warning signs are or they can't change their circumstances enough, you know. And sometimes people know they're stressed and have got the end of their tether. They just can't do anything about it. So the next thing that happens is, is using up favours, using up fat stores, bickies in the jar, whatever it is. And after that comes these kind of burnout kind of things, perhaps where you're not really functioning very well. Um, you're perhaps quite tearful. And then after that, ultimately, the, bo the body says, hey, stop, enough. You know, I know things are unbearable. I know they haven't got any better, but I'm parking up. I'm stopping. I'm sitting down. And I think that's where we're getting perhaps into the territory of depression, where the body is just saying, I know we're still sitting in the middle of the motorway, but I can't drive anymore. I I've just stopped for now. And ironically, I think from the point of view of suicide and that sort of thing, it's not so much the depth of the depression that is the problem as the feelings of helplessness. Um, it's quite interesting. If you talk to people who are depressed, as, as psychiatrists, we use these kind of rating scales and they all sort of rate your mood and all that kind of thing. But it's not often the mood that's the problem. So, for example, for one person, it might be, do you know, what? I, I can cope with feeling sad. I can even cope with having negative thoughts. It's lying awake and staring at the ceiling at night. I really can't abide. And so different symptoms might be different key things for different people. Um, and also, particularly for suicide, like I was touching on earlier, it's not so much the depth of the depression. The person may go through an extremely deep depression after a bereavement, let's say. Um, but th th that will pass or that doesn't particularly bother them because they kind of perhaps know that is, is to be expected, perhaps after losing a spouse. But it's, it's the hopelessness, the key thing. Things will never get any better. I can't see out. And this idea that I was introducing earlier that, that, that suicide seems, seems logical and it's the hopelessness and the feeling of trappedness that is particularly important, particularly important in that. And what I want to do is, if I can, just ask you to spend one or two minutes around your tables um, just thinking a little bit about how does debt cause depression? So there's a couple of things I want you to think about. One is this slide how does that slide down how does debt cause that slide down at what point does debt begin to cause depression and why is it some people can get into debt without getting depressed and also this idea about how does debt lead to hopelessness it's a fairly simple task but just to because your digestive juices are now at maximum i just want you to discuss that just around your tables quickly for a couple of minutes all right
Okay. Yeah, I'll do it again. Okay, right. So if we can just get some thoughts and some ideas back from your discussions, perhaps from that table over there, what kind of things were you talking about? Lack of control. Lack of control. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, it's just, I think everyone wants control of their life and their circumstances. Once that's slowly eaten away and taken away from them. Yeah. And I suppose, going back to the beginning, I suppose suicide is the only control they've got left. Yes. At their own destiny. Yes, yes. And that, that is their only one thing they, they have in their hand that they can control. Definitely. And there's something... It's very interesting if you sort of get talking to men who are depressed. You know, there's something very embarrassing about getting into debt and wanting to be a man and be a breadwinner and a provider and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, as you say, you know, perhaps suicide is a way that they can say, well, you know, particularly if you've got an insurance policy, at least I can do something, you know, um, or at least I can stop making it any worse, you know. So, so yeah, there's an element of the feeling of being out of control and wanting to control something, but also the shame and wanting to bring some control back. Yeah. Table at the back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So things that used to support you, like your hobby or your work, just the work environment, a bit of banter, the odd beer, that kind of thing. Um, you know, now now you can't afford them. Yes. So so a lack of support as well as the presence of misery. Yeah. Um, any thoughts just at the back? Yes. 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 So, so you're often dealing with really quite vulnerable people, and you know one, one of the sad epidemiological truths of mental illness is that bad things happen to unlucky people, and the the more depressed you are, the more likely you are to have negative life events. People just start dying around you, and yeah. just because you're depressed, and I don't understand that, but it's it's it, it, it's true, yeah. you know, which is that some people seem to have very lucky lives. And some people seem to have very unlucky lives, and the more unlucky it gets, the worse it gets as well. And it's, it, yeah. Mm. Okay, anything from this table here? More or less said the same. That's okay, yeah. So a lack of, a lack of support, yeah. Uh, this table here? Health. So maybe you take a day off work, but you're in a temporary job, so you actually lose your job. Right. Yes, so often people are in jobs where they're either only getting paid for the hours they do. Um, yeah, so if you are on the breadline, actually giving up the one job you've got, which may be necessary for your sanity and having a bit of time to get better, is possibly the one thing you can't do. So you've got to keep going and keep going and keep going. Yeah. Um, at the back table there. Yeah. Yes. So isolated and guilty. Yeah. And one of the things I'm going to say quickly later is that, you know, it, it's, it's better to ask someone and for them to say, I don't want to talk about it than for someone to be wanting to talk about it and for no one ever to ask them. You know, it's better that way round. Yeah. This table over here. With the word hopelessness, it's a lack of things to, you know, lack of goals, a lack of things to get up and aim for. Right. So there's nothing to strive at. Yes. Yeah. And certainly when you're in the blackness, it's very hard to set goals. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, how maybe you shouldn't be too positive around someone. But actually, you know, even just a simple goal, you know, like, do you want to get back to work? What type of work you might do might be just too much to think about. It, it might be what what do you plan to buy to eat this week? You know, can I help you just with maybe cooking a meal, a simple, cheap meal? You know, just a really simple kind of goal. So so toning the goals down can bring them within a person's reach, but it is sometimes like getting blood out of a stone. You're right, but, it, but it's important work because having some kind of um, appointment in the future, um, I always make sure that, well, it's actually one of the government requirements that when people are discharged from hospital, they have an appointment of some kind in the first seven days. So at least it's something that is there that you think, right, well, at least I know I'm seeing so-and-so on Tuesday. And it's just, it's just something in the future, even if it's only someone popping in to see how they are and have a cup of tea. Yeah. 
And just introducing the idea of um, static and dynamic risks. Um, a lot of the things that we've talked about, a lot of the predictors for suicide are relatively unchangeable, like being a certain age, being male, um, being from a working class background or living in a, living in a, a, a poorer urban area. Some of those are relatively unchangeable. But there are lots of dynamic factors, such as um, currently being physically ill with uh, maybe bad asthma because it's spring uh, or, or currently being in debt. You know, and if there are dynamic factors that affect how we feel. So although it may seem like there's an overwhelming, you know, this person was born in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong country, in the wrong century, um, and they've had the worst start in life, although it can seem that there is an inevitable pressure, there's always dynamic factors. And looking for the dynamic factors is the first key to help. It's about lifting the cloud a little bit. And then, yes, after that, there may well be some longer term, maybe some counselling or perhaps several years in a supportive community like a church before the person could say they were happy. But raising the cloud is, is the first step. And, you know, working with debt is, is so important. Just a bit of a thought about, um, you know, and if you are talking to someone and they are talking about suicidal thoughts, how do you know whether it's just an off the cuff mention? How do you know when to take it? How do you know when to take it seriously? And uh, these are just some sort of thoughts that we, we tend to ask about. Um, I mean, I just think probably virtually everyone I see professionally has had a suicidal thought of, of some kind at some point, possibly currently. And one thing I don't do is admit them all to hospital or rush down to A&E. And, and so these are some of the kind of things that, that we think about. Um, the best predictor of the future is the past. So if a person has had lots of serious suicide attempts, Chances are they're probably going to make a serious suicide attempt in the future. Um, so, and you know, whereas if it's someone who perhaps has just occasionally self-harmed in a, in a in a more minor way or taken very small overdoses but always rung someone up, then that will probably be what they do in the future. Whereas a history of serious suicide attempts is is serious, and I think you know you do need to be getting professional help with that, like the person you were talking about earlier. Now there may be nothing you can do. And there may be nothing that services can do, but the best predictor of the future is, is the past. So what kind of unhelpful behaviours have there been in the past? Um, also, a recent change in how they are. Is there a recent change going on? Is there an element of clinical depression perhaps in here that suggests that the person won't be able to think themselves out of this like they have in the past? Um, are there drugs and alcohol involved? Are they recently homeless or some other major event like bereavement? Older people is an interesting one. I don't know how many of you have worked with older people with, with debt problems who you've wondered if they're, they're depressed. And the, the long and the short of it is that younger people talk about their emotions a lot and older people don't as much. So if you're talking with an older person and they're seriously thinking about ending their life, take it seriously. Okay. Partly because it takes more for them to talk about it and also partly because in older people it only really tends to come out in more in more serious mental illness. So if an older person is talking about ending their life, you need to be taking that seriously and definitely get them to see their GP. Severe mental illnesses or the presence of any other unusual symptoms such as psychosis, voices, things like that, you know, you ought to be thinking, you know, it's not, I mean, you know, they may well come and see a mental health professional and the mental health professional won't be too interested in it, but I think it's something that I would say to you as sort of members of the public as such, that's something where you ought to be taking that a bit more seriously because it's complex enough that perhaps needs a second pair of eyes. And also extensive planning. And I'm going to say a little bit about that later, but the nub and the gist of it is if they've already written the invitations to the funeral, you need to be taking it seriously. Okay. Now, a bit more interactive stuff. What I want to do is just come back, keep coming back to this idea that um, this is something that the church needs to start talking about. It's something we need to be addressing. Um, a lot of you are going to be centre managers and you're going to be working perhaps with support workers from the church, from befriending teams, that kind of thing. And I would imagine there's a range of people on your befriending team. So some of them may be excellent, very, very, very supportive people when it comes to mental illness. Others of them might have slightly different attitudes to mental illness or there might be other people in the church who are very, very intolerant or the pastor might be very intolerant. So what I want to do now is a little exercise basically to encourage you to think about both sides of the argument. So what we've got, we've got these two um, papers 
and uh, the first paper is called The Daily Blag. It's a, a right-wing working-class tabloid that bemoans the day Margaret Thatcher left number 10. Okay, and you know what kind of slant they're going to take on um, people who go around overdosing the whole time. And, um, and the, the other one is, is, is called The Enthusiast, um, and that is our good friend recently in office, in his younger days, uh, a leftist broadsheet more in tune with the responsibilities that we all face in society, yes? Okay, so, so what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to give each table is going to be one of these papers. And what I want you to do, you've got this chappy, Scott Jegg, okay, is now employed, 21-year-old man who frequently cuts his arms and legs or takes overdoses, and he's been to A&E over 100 times. And, of course, he's in debt as well. And what I want you to do, I want you to use your unique skills as a journalist to write an article for the paper backing Scott in his campaign. And the editorial advice is please be as biased as possible <laughs> in this situation, okay? So what I've got somewhere are some um, more copies of the vignette. So perhaps to the um, tables on this side of the room, I could pass these round. If I could pass two or three to each paper, and if I could ask you to be from the Daily Blag, our right-wing colleagues on the right-hand side of the audience. If someone could pass that to the, the back table there. And I'm going to ask some of you over here to be the enthusiast. And what I want is a spokesperson from each table. And what we're after, you can just write it on the back of the handout or something like that, is just a nice biased headline, a nice biased headline um, about how you're going to write this story up in your in your newspaper, okay? So what I'm after is a nice a nice headline and maybe two or three paragraphs about either from the right wing or the left wing point of view. Is that fairly clear around your tables? Yes? Okay, right. Who is um, th th this group over here? Look, look ready to um, look ready to present. Okay, so who who have we got? This is so. Can we can we listen to uh, from my my first candidate from the left? Right, okay, headline, we didn't, we didn't do a, a paper type thing, but um, our headline is Cutting Edge Ideas Reduce Man Hours for the NHS and Scot Free. Okay, um, 20 years Scott's experience of the NHS following many trips to the, to the hospital has brought about different uh, circumstances in respect to what he wants to do for anybody in his situation in the future. He wants to save the NHS money in the long run. It could be any one of us, anybody's child, anybody's um, family. And he's been neglected, and he doesn't want people to be neglected and in the same position that he's in. Thank you. So the, the, the unlucky lad from the council state environment wants to do something. This clip art, by the way, if you, if you type Chav into the Microsoft website, this is, this, this is Chav clip art. It's true. It's courtesy of Microsoft. Okay, from the right, maybe it's not such a tolerant opinion. Who, who wants to give an alternative view? Oh. <laughs> one paragraph, one paragraph. Let, could you just stand up and then I'm just going to just put this slightly nearer you. Accidental junkie self-harms NHS. Scott Jegg, 21 and unemployed, has plagued our local A&E with over 100 selfish visits due to his interpretation of A&E as anything and everything. The reality is A&E stands for Accident and Emergency. Break a leg, Scott. Great. <laughs> so it's amazing, isn't it? He, he'd be allowed plaster of Paris if he broke a leg, probably while out clubbing in town, but he wouldn't be allowed help for, for mental illness. That's very harsh. Mental illness and physical illness, they're both real. Uh, okay, right, from the left again, a more tolerant opinion. Who's speaking from this table? <laughs> Nobody else can read my writing. Um, a cut above the rest, from self-harming to saving lives. Money um, is money for training programme, um, supporting NHS staff and developing them, um, encouraging human rights, 
um, empowerment, you know, development, all that. Um, uh, the current system's not working, so it needs change. It's patient-directed training, you know, it's all all good. Um, and uh, helping others, not for self-harm. Thank you. I think I should, I should tell Gordon Brown he's got a worthy successor. <laughs> Who is from the from the right again? Who's going to speak from this table? A small paragraph. Go on then. Headline is waste to drains resources. Treatment for hardworking taxpayers are layabouts. Waste of space. Twenty-one year old Scott Jag, having contributed nothing in his life, recently obtained taxpayers money to preach about self harmers. That's as far as we got. Excellent. Thanks very much. <laughs> Okay, one more. Who's who's leading the chart? Oh, we're right. Are you right? Oh, okay. Okay, compassion from the left. Quick. <laughs> right. Our headline: slashed wrists a hundred times, and who cares? Scott Jegg is an unemployed 21-year-old single man, and he's just been passed around in the system right from a young age. No one cared about him. He's been abused. He's asked for help various times as he's grown up and no one's listened to him this is the chance for him to actually make a difference um, it, statistics show that one in five teens will self-harm and you know most of the suicides are in this age group so this is got to be a better way thank you and of course, statistics are an often used shocking left-wing tactic to actually suggest that something can be done. I mean, it's far better to take a completely biased point of view from the right. For our final paper... Local yob pulls wool over the eyes of the NHS. NHS resources are being wasted on a trendy training course about self-harming for already overstretched nursing staff. Local dosser Scott Jegg has nothing better to do than waste valuable time and, many, and money visiting the local hospital over a hundred times with his attention-seeking behaviour. This money could have been better spent on cancer patients. Oh. And, of course, the only cause more worthy than cancer patients is the little children. So we all want to spend money on the little children. But it's a serious point. I mean, you know, dealing with these kind of things, mental health has often been a sort of Cinderella speciality. Uh, people don't necessarily want to go into it. It's not seen as real medicine. Um, psychiatrists sometimes defend against that by pretending to do real medicine. Like, you know, that's one of the reasons why people... Yeah, there's been lots of research into medication and stuff like that because of course it's real medicine because we prescribe stuff and use pills and, and things like that and it's one of the problems because I mean, of course part of it is real medicine I think there is a role for medication but a lot of it is not real medicine but these people still go and see their GP turn up in A&E um, and a medical approach can be helpful in some situations but there's definitely the situation that um, these things are a bit like an illness in that it's not necessarily your fault you know these things happen to you um, in, in the same way that you know debt is not necessarily someone's fault um in the same way that cancer is not someone's fault but i think cancer and that sort of thing is slightly different because cancer is not necessarily your responsibility to do something about if that makes sense um you know it's part of the doctors and partly who knows maybe some of it is god's responsibility as well and, and the churches to to be working with people but i think particularly with with certainly many forms of mental illness there is an element in which it is the person's responsibility but it's also God's responsibility and it's also the church's responsibility to be working with this as well. Um, and same with debt. You know, it's not necessarily the person's fault, but the only person who can ultimately budget and balance their books is them. And, um, you know, if someone is involved in, in, in self-harming or particularly the more what we call neurosis end of the spectrum, depression, anxiety, that kind of thing. It can be quite easy. We're having, you know, brought up in council estates, passed from council home to council home. Some of those illustrations we had, it's not necessarily someone's fault that they've ended up in a position where they're wanting to end their life. But at the end of the day, it does have to be their decision in, in, in part. Okay. Talked a bit about... Um, demands and resources but just something that I put on your slides there about um, you know what we're saying is that the the static demands perhaps we can't do so much about you know the history of 
violence and abuse, but perhaps some of the, the dynamic demands we, we, we can do about. And a, a couple of things I think debt counsellors particularly can be working with. Of course, one is decreasing debt um, or perhaps getting a person to the point where they're saying, OK, we cannot decrease this debt. We need to declare you bankrupt. And that actually can be like, wow, I didn't actually know there was such a thing called bankruptcy. You know, it can be quite an important conversation to have someone. But also decreasing isolation. I think it's really important, not only external isolation, i.e. they've dropped out of contact with all of their friends, but also internal isolation. I've never really spoken about my money problems with anybody. I've never spoken about my suicidal ideas with anybody. So actually being community with people is really, really important. So something about instilling hope in earthly ways, and I'm sure one of the things you do in your first couple of sessions is sit down and think, we have a three-year plan that can get you out of debt. Now, it might be through a plan or it might be through bankruptcy, but we have a way if you will help us to work with you to balance your things to get you out of debt. And, you know, it sounds kind of simplistic, but it is actually quite simplistic, isn't it? You know, now, of course, it depends on the person sticking to budget or being willing to go, go to bankruptcy, but there is a plan there. So there is earthly hope. And the other thing, of course, that, that CAP brings, which perhaps other debt counselling organisations do, is... Um, well, it says in uh, Hebrews 11, Abraham had hope beyond human hope. You know, he had that extra level of hope, which is hope even when there isn't human hope, even when humanity says there's no answer here, there's nothing that can be done. Abraham still had faith in that situation, and we can offer hope despite the fact that everything's pointing in the opposite direction, which is the essence of Christianity, really. I should be heading to hell. I'm not. I'm heading to heaven. A bit about how to ask some of the questions. So how to raise these questions. We said that decreasing isolation is important and part of that's external, visiting people. Some of that is internal isolation that they are imposing on themselves because they haven't got anyone to talk to about these kind of things. And I just want to introduce to you the idea of what we call funnel questions. And we'll just work through this before we have a, a, a short comfort break. But something about funnel questions. I think the first thing is to say people are relieved to begin talking about it. And like I said, it's far better to begin, ask perhaps an open question first in, in, in most situations, perhaps. You know, I'm working on the assumption that at least half of the people you're working with, this is going to be a, the first question on the list is a relevant question. You may decide to go nowhere with that. They may say, yes, but no, thank you. But it's far better to just ask an open question if you have any kind of suspicion rather than um, to not ask about it and then be desperate to talk about it. So people are relieved. Um, like I was saying, you know, don't be too positive. But it, what we're offering, I think the key thing for me is offering, we're offering Christ's hope. We're offering hope beyond human hope. We're not sort of saying, hey, I can sort this one out for you. Isn't this brilliant? You know, two weeks we'll be there. You know, you'll be on a cruise in the Bahamas, you know. I mean, that sounds silly from the point of view of debt counselling. It's equally silly from the point of view of suicidal ideas because it's taken a person a little while to get to this situation. You know, for someone to be thinking about harming themselves is the ultimate violation. It takes a while to break down your, your personal boundaries to that point. Um, and sometimes those boundaries have been broken down over the years by repeated assaults, repeated abuse, perhaps repeated rape, things like that. People have been damaged over years. You know, you're not going to put those boundaries back over overnight. Even God's love is going to take a little while for them to learn to trust God. And it's as much a, a process as it is an event. So don't be too positive. But you can either talk about hope beyond human hope. You can talk about the practicalities of cap-based three-year plan hope. You can also hold hope. For people, I think it's quite important. And you can say things like, I know you can't see a way out. Or 99% of you just thinks there's no point and there's only really half a percent of you that's come along to see me today. But can I talk to that half percent? Can, I, can, can you let me hold the hope for you a little bit and perhaps we can meet again next time? And being compassionate and being consistent are just really, really important. Compassion, of course, is not about hugging people it's about suffering with that's what the word means literally com passus suffering the passion the passus of christ on the cross suffering with someone compassion and being consistent keeping appointments ringing up if you're not going to be able to make it and i'm sure this is stuff that you're taught anyway as part of being professional but it's also really really important if you're working with difficult and damaged people is to be reliable yeah. and that's why you must have people on the team who are reliable because a missed appointment could make all the difference you know, I have to plan my holidays probably a couple of months in advance. I really don't like 
cancelling outpatient clinics because I've offered someone an appointment and have to change it. So it's really important to be sort of fairly clear about that. And the idea about funnel questions is fairly simple. You start open and you get more closed. So the kind of things you might want to say, first of all, is um, just perhaps you're talking about someone's mood and their unhappiness. Just a really open question, you know, when it gets bad, how bad does it get? You know, does it ever get really, really bad? You know, and you start asking a question like that and they may say, well, it, it goes up and down, but it doesn't actually get that bad. I'm okay, I can distract myself. Okay, fine, don't ask any more questions. Just stop at that point, but at least you've kind of raised it. Um, and then perhaps if they're saying yes, you know, you can say, you know, have you ever felt like wanting to just, just, just get away from it all, just not be here anymore? And people often say things like, you know, yeah, I just wish I could just go to sleep. Okay, and it doesn't mean that they're suicidal, they just want to go to sleep. Okay, that's all it means. Uh, and, you know, you mustn't sort of push, 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 push if they say yes to that question. But, you know, you might want to ask a little bit more, you know, have you ever got as far as making any plans to, to, to do that? You know, that might be the next question. Um, have you ever hurt yourself in any way? Have you ever actually taken an overdose and not told anyone? And, I mean, I would say probably that's as far as you ought to be asking and at each time, you get, if you get a no, just stop. That's okay. But this idea about gently introducing it, gently beginning to ask the open questions, and then perhaps asking some of the more specific questions. So, you know, how bad does it get? Does it ever get really bad? Have you thought about getting away from it all? Have you ever actually made any plans about that? And have you ever actually done that and, and, and not told anyone? Um, of course, you may find that they have done it two years ago and told someone and got some counselling. That's fine. But what we're looking for really is the person who's feeling very lonely with these thoughts and feelings, who needs to talk to someone about it. And your role is just perhaps to find that information out and act as a conduit. And people are quite worried about asking these questions. First of all, it's a kind of taboo topic in British culture. But I suggest that Actually, it's not a taboo topic anymore. You know, ever since the 1960s, the sort of lid has been off the emotional box. And it's okay to ask these questions. It's particularly okay if the person's wanting to talk about them but hasn't had a chance to. So it, it's better that you ask the open question, perhaps the first one, you know, when it gets bad, how bad does it really get? If you ask that of, I would say, half or more than half of your clients, um, it's better to do that than, than not to ask about it. It's better to be a taboo than for the person to really feel isolated. And they may say, oh, no, no, I'd never do anything like that. Fine, back off, just leave it alone. Um, and also people are worried that asking about it causes harm. Now, sometimes it might raise unpleasant feelings, but generally speaking, they're more relieved. You know, they're not going to go out the door and do it just because you talked about it, okay? The only reason, the only time they're going to go out the door and take a massive overdose is if you dig, 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 dig and play amateur, amateur psychiatrist, okay? Asking a couple of simple questions will cause more relief than it will cause harm. You know, you shouldn't be attempting to do your own counselling. That's true. And that could cause harm. But asking simple questions won't. So what I'd like to do, just in twos, is just practice some of these funnel questions, okay? So I want one of you to pretend to be suicidal and you can method act that as much as you like you can do the whole sort of hang your head you know pull your hair down or, or you can just do it straight I don't mind but what I want you to do is to do it in twos and then just swap role okay one of you pretend to be a debt counsellor or a befriending person and then just swap role just want you to have done it once today okay so you've done it once today and then perhaps you can do it because it, it sounds silly but it's kind of quite difficult to do if you've never done it before so if you can do that now for a couple of minutes and then um, I'll get you back together What I'm interested in particularly is, what was it like doing that role play? Um, from the point of view of the person who was the debt counsellor, what was it like being the debt counsellor? Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Explain a bit more. Well, Janet and I worked together. And I did go through a terrible crisis when I was suicidal. And Janet brought me out of it. Right. And I was hoping I wouldn't get to it today. <laughs> so I said, right, okay, you've got to be the, uh, mm. you know. Mm. And she just wouldn't respond at all. She wouldn't. Right, so sometimes I... I just smack her So I act... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one tactic. I, I can't... <laughs> I can't recommend that. But it's interesting, isn't it? So, so sometimes, you know, the person will really be saying absolutely nothing. You know, I mean, you don't have to sort of go like a sledgehammer. Okay. 
like I say, if you ask the question, the person wants to talk, they'll be relieved and they'll talk. Okay, uh, but I wouldn't ask 19 questions or have two minutes of painful silence. Um, it's also perhaps, you know, particularly if you and I know that our people in the room and. Um, also, I'm sure many of the people who want to work for an organization like CAP will have stories of, of, of debt and distress. And sometimes sort of asking those questions of another person, if you've been through them yourself, can be can be quite difficult. Um, but they're, they're simple questions and it's, it's just it's more about compassion and suffering with somebody than necessarily having lots of answers. Any other sort of perspectives from the point of view of a debt counselor? Actually, what was it like to ask those questions? A bit odd. A bit odd? In what way? Just, I, well, I guess it's probably mostly the role play sort of thing, but just to ask somebody those questions and think about actually asking somebody who really has been through that sort of question. It's very prying almost, you know, because if you don't know the person, mm. to, mm. to be asking them questions like that. I think, yeah, and it, it is if they're not needed. Uh, I think the first question, you know, when it gets bad, how bad does it get? Hopefully, you know, you, you could ask that of, of, of many people and you'd only ask the others if you felt it was appropriate. You know, they were saying, actually, it's blooming awful. It's black as black. You know, then, then, then you might feel sort of slightly more helpful, uh, slightly more open about asking the next one. But yeah, it is important just to sort of go. I mean, do you feel more confident now having just gone through it and done them? Yeah. So it's helpful doing that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, and I think you know, I, I think like you say, pe people go into CAP because they want to give solutions. It, it's a solution-focused charity. It wants to help people. It believes it can help people. Um, sometimes there aren't solutions, and sometimes you know, particularly if you're just a, a funnel and perhaps just raising the topic and perhaps pointing someone in the direction of some more appropriate help. We'll cover a bit later. Um, can be frustrating, but you know, listening, listening is as important, and suffering with is, is as important as answers, really. So, I mean, I find it difficult. I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm meant to be good at listening. In actual fact, I only see people probably two or three mornings a week. I, I quite like the sort of management teaching aspect of it. So, I don't know why I'm a psychiatrist, but um, <laughs> don't come and share your problems with me. I'm, I'm, I'm great up front, but <laughs> you come and sit down and you just get answers. So. <laughs> Right. Mm. Yes. I find normally in that sort of situation, they say something, and I want to, I want to help. But actually, thinking I'm funneling this down, I'm trying to find out something, and having another question to ask. Yeah. Actually, help stop me from wanting mm. to give solutions. Mm. 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 Yeah. So yeah, and then of course you know what do you do if if they've confess that actually they're really suicidal and they've made fairly extensive plans and you know what do you do next we'll, 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 we'll come on to that don't worry yep Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons why I haven't sort of majored on the sort of counselling aspect today. One is, you know, you're not employed as counsellors, you're employed as debt counsellors, and I think we need to be sort of fairly clear on that. Um, but that is the kind of stuff that, that someone else may say, which is, you know, okay, well, what's stopping you? Like I was saying, some people say, well, I just couldn't do it. You know, I thought about it, but I really couldn't do it. Um, or, you know, my children, or, or, or something like that. And those are good things, you know, and... You know, they're not answers, but if they're stopping the person from actually doing it, then there, there they are good things. Um, but I, mean, I can't really sort of get into sort of, you know, the counselling aspects today. It's more about, you know, checking out if there's something that you want to take further with someone else. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yes. Yes. Phone, so, can you just give us a little bit of guidelines on the 
ask me that question again when we get to the end and we're talking about what to do and ground rules and things like that. I think we'll cover it. Okay. Um, just a little bit about, I mean, obviously what, what we're suggesting is, you know, if you, if you find out that a person is quite suicidal, you know, ultimately what we're going to want to do is perhaps get, get some more professional help. And actually your role was alleviating debt, giving earthly and heavenly hope, but also getting someone else involved. But how do you know how quickly you need to do that? Is this a matter of sort of marching down A&E with the person and saying, right, sit down, <laughs> you know, you can't go home. This is really too much. Um, or is it, uh, okay, right, well, I'm glad we talked about that. Let's get back to our debt counselling and perhaps that will help. You know, how do you know how seriously to take someone? And the, the sort of, one of the things is the extent of the planning. Um, so if you do get into a conversation about someone who, who really has got it all planned, you know, the will is written, the hymns to the funeral are picked, uh, they're giving their things away, um, you know, I mean, that's the kind of time where you want to think, okay, we need to be doing something in the next few days here, really. Um, also, isolation in terms of steps they would take. I would go up onto the moors last thing at night where no one is going to find me. I know how to do it. I know where my parents are going to be away. Um, you know, steps like that to isolate themselves. Basically, the more the person has thought it through, the more seriously you ought to take it, is, is the rough advice. Um, but I think the other sort of point to make is, you know, as well as trying to do your own little sort of risk assessment in your head about do I need to do something about this, the most important thing, particularly as a member of the public fundamentally, is just most people just want someone to sit with them and share their suffering. Most people actually don't want answers. And perhaps and that's what I sometimes say to myself when I'm tempted to give answers. Actually, all the surveys say people don't want answers. Partly because they know there aren't any, and partly because actually just sitting with someone is, 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 just the, is just the most important thing. You know, and also from a Christian point of view, God is happy with our sufferings. There's a, there's a friend of mine who... Um, went overseas to uh, Australia, to a well-known church in Australia, and was on their academy. And he came back full of the joys of how the Bible contained all this teaching for happiness and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he's someone who's talked about the Bible quite a lot beforehand. And, um, and he came back and he said, oh, I've been in this amazing year. And um, ask me any question you like. I've learned so much about the Bible. And I said to him, which is the only psalm that hasn't got a happy ending? And he was completely flawed because he thought all the psalms had happy endings. Because he thought, well, I know they get a bit depressing in the middle, but they always have a happy ending, don't they? And he went, no, 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 you need to go and read Psalm 88 because it closes with the words, darkness is my closest friend. You know, God is, God is happy. God is happy with, to, have to sit with David in his darkness. He's, he doesn't always provide an answer. Sometimes he just wants to sit with him. Sometimes, you know, when, when God finally answered Job, he didn't give him an answer. He gave him 64 questions. You know, and, and sometimes God doesn't give answers. He gives us questions and he's happy to sit with us in, in our suffering and our distress. And sometimes that can be our role as well. Um, you know, yes, we might want to try and help come up with some answers, but actually it's a very, very, very Christian thing to do is just to sit with someone and share their pain and say, it's okay. God knows this pain. Jesus Christ knows this pain. You know, when Jesus Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he wasn't having a theological debate with God. He, he was, and God didn't reject him. You know, God was just with him in his suffering. You know, we considered him rejected and despised by God. God didn't. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It's really important to remember. It's a perfectly acceptable attitude as a Christian just to sit with someone and suffer with them. Yes, we also want to do the other stuff about trying to provide practical help, instilling earthly and heavenly hope. But don't ever overestimate just sitting with someone and sharing their suffering. And where to go next? Where to go next? I mean, Dick, De- that's why it's great coming to talk to Cat because you have got a really good practical answer. De- debt counselling is so important about relieving dynamic factors. Also, also the ability, perhaps if someone is mildly or moderately depressed, uh, someone who perhaps is severely depressed may just not even be able to think a single positive thought ever. But someone who's mildly to moderately depressed, you can say to them, well, come on, let me walk alongside you in this or... I know part of you doesn't think this is going to work, but the part of you that does think it's going to work, can I work with that bit? You know, and you, you, just debt counselling, can, you can really just give hope and hold hope for a person, and it, it can be really, really helpful. And to be honest, for mild to moderate depression, it's probably better than medication. 
Okay, it's probably better than professional services. Just really helping someone with the practical stuff, particularly if that is the straw that's broken the camel's back, or it's the main problem. Um, when should there be NHS or medication? I think particularly the case if it's got to the point of severe depression or clinical depression or self-perpetuating depression, where even if you get rid of the original straw that broke the camel's back, the person's still depressed. And sometimes, you know, the person may have got depressed because perhaps their friends have, have left them and, you know, it may be caused by debt or they've just kind of got themselves more and more and more isolated and more and more and more in debt. And even if you gave them money and friends, they wouldn't be happy because they've kind of got beyond that kind of point. Do you, do you know what I mean? That, that, you know, you see like, look, all these people are wanting to be your friends. I've got this wonderful befriending team who really, they really are wanting to be your friends. And I can't see it. They're just in it for the money or they must be being paid to do it or it's just because they're Christians or they feel they ought to or something. And it's like, no, you know, that, that is a self-perpetuating depression. Um, whereas before, actually, people respond very well to the befriending kind of team. So that could be a role for the NHS or, or for medication there. Um, also, if the risk is perhaps one that, you know, you really think, I'm actually worried about leaving this person at home overnight. And, you know, as a member of the public, a really good guide is the hairs on the back of your neck. Okay, if you're worried, do something about it. Okay, I'll say a little bit more about breaching confidence and things like that in a bit. And also the role of the church and the gospel. Um, partly the gospel, you know, it applies at all levels. It's okay to be depressed. You know, read the Psalms. They are the hymn book of the church. There are some bad Psalms and some good Psalms. You know, read them all. They're all inspired. Um, and also the gospel contains this idea of hope. Both, both in terms of, of earthly hope, and you know, and I do believe that as, as, as Christians, God has promised us blessings. But for some, not all are going to participate in those blessings, but there is still the promise of heaven. So the gospel is there at all levels, I think, in the emotional spectrum. But also the church is there as a support, as an encouragement, as a, as a, as a new role. The person may you know, become a Christian and all of a sudden think, wow, I'm going to take on the red light ministry in the church and just suddenly find themselves in the new ministry. Uh, and it's wonderful to, to see that, you know, a person going from sort of zero to, to hero in this new role. It's amazing. Or just the role of the church in getting someone out of bed on a Sunday. Um, and one of the things that we've written on the website is some advice about going back to church. You know, some people are worried about going back to church for the first time or going into church and everyone's saying, oh, how are you? Where have you been? You know, and all these kind of questions like this. And, you know, although I wouldn't recommend it as a long term tactic, it's fine to turn up five minutes late and leave five minutes early. Okay, if you want to avoid people, avoid people. Just go for the hymns and the sermon and leave. Okay, now you don't want to do that forever. And if you constantly don't engage in the community of church, you'll never get the benefits of the community of church, but it can be a step for some people. So getting back into church is really important. Other options, and I've put these in mainly because the web addresses are on your handbook. Um, you probably know about some of these, but let's just be run through them anyway. If you feel the main problem is a relationship problem, ongoing divorce, unsettled, um, emotional abuse, I think domestic violence, there has to be a call at some point, whether it's a police matter or not. But certainly most relationships relate will give help with. Uh, relate are a voluntary organisation, partly government funded. Um, they do charge, but it's means tested and you can go by yourself. So if it's just the husband and the wife doesn't want to go, that's okay. You can go by yourself. So um, obviously, again, your debt counsellors, you're not relationship counsellors. And some of you might be more skilled in that, or there might be someone else in the church you can help. Brilliant. But Relate is not a bad place to go. And with the secular counselling organisations, they're actually very, and with the NHS as well, they're actually very pleased if there's someone else involved in the person's life. So if the spouse can't go, well, why can't you go to the appointment as well, just as a friend? Or why can't you go and see the GP with them? Or go and see the psychiatrist or the counsellor with them. Maybe not every session, and the counsellor may say, I can't counsel both of you. But you can say, well, look, could I come to the first one, and then maybe I can just come along to the fifth one or the sixth one or something like that. You know, I mean, a good mental health worker should be really glad there's other supports in a person's life. They know that the problems are not just between the person's ears. It's to do with their context and their environment as well. So you should be able to do that. Cruise for bereavement. Um, Mainly bereavement through, through death, um, particularly through suicide. They have specialist counsellors for that. But also sometimes bereavement is the most sensible approach for divorce. Um, there's also an excellent book by Pablo Martinez from the Spring Harvest um, sort of bookstore called Tracing the Rainbow, 
which is about bereavement from a Christian point of view. Pablo is a Christian psychiatrist in Spain. Um, he's a frequent speaker at Spring Harvest, and it's, it's called Tracing the Rainbow, and it's about bereavement from both death and divorce, and also from um, people, children who are bereaved or, or people who've lost, lost children. Um, housing advice and CAB and things like that, Citizens Advice Bureau, I'm sure you know about, can do some stuff that you can't, um, can wangle rent and housing benefits perhaps in ways that you can't. So there's no reason why a person can't see two, two sort of support agencies. Um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, you probably know about, um, but don't forget the sister organizations, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon for spouses and Alateen for children of people with substance problems. Okay, so you can get to them all through the AA website. Right, we're going to have a comfort break in a second, but are there any questions about that in particular, particularly perhaps about um, where you send people or, or where you go to get help and the sort of what next kind of questions? Yes. Yeah, so people who are sort of unwilling to contact mental health services. Um, yeah, I think, I think the first thing to say is things have moved on. So one of the things that's happened pretty much countrywide over the last couple of years is the provision of home treatment teams and basically hardly admit anybody. I mean, my, my particular area is um, about 40,000 people just north of Bradford. And at the moment, I have zero inpatients. So out of my 40,000 people, I haven't got a single person in hospital. Um, so I, I, I mean, I'm a fairly standard sector psychiatrist. Yes, it's not the most urban of patches, but I haven't got any inpatients at the moment. And I haven't had more than one for the past six months. So that's down a lot from what it was five years ago. So we hardly admit anybody to hospital nowadays and people will be cared for either in their homes with just a daily visit or even a daily visit and a couple of daily phone calls, twice a day visit if, if need be. It depends on what family and friends are around. So, so there are these sort of community wards that are alternatives to, to coming into hospital. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not ideal. Um, people very rarely, and I think I say to people, look, you know, we're not, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to solve all your problems in hospital because your problems are deeper and more complex than that. What I am trying to do is provide you with some basic support. Think of it as B&B &B for a week, you know, and, and it's just, they don't have to go in and talk. Uh, they can just go in and just have someone around. And um, so I think, I mean, I would be encouraging people if you feel it's that serious. And as a member of the public slash relative slash friend, you can also be quite honest and you can say, I'm worried about you. You know, that's all you need to say. You don't need to say, you must go in hospital. You can say, I'm, I'm worried about you. Um, and you, you may even want to be slightly more blunt and say, particularly if you're feeling that they're going to look to you rather than the hospital, you're perfectly within your rights to say, I think you're putting an unfair burden on me. You know, I, th I think you can say that and say, I think you're asking me to do things I can't do. And to be honest, I feel as though you're putting upon me. And I, I, I feel quite, because you're speaking from your own point of view, you can say that. So if you're feeling pressured or put upon or feel that they're not manipulating, because that's the wrong word, but you feel that they're essentially asking you to do stuff that you're not happy with, just say, I'm not happy with that. And I think you're being unfair because you're asking me to bear quite a lot of stress. And I can't do that. And I really think you ought to go into hospital. Yeah. I think, yeah, so I mean, this is if, if someone's in contact with psychiatric services, you know, they might tend to keep mum about suicidal thoughts. To be honest, like I say, we really do hardly admit anybody. Um, and, you know, I talk fairly openly with suicidal ideas about most people I see, because I know that it's, it's more important to talk. And I, I think, you know, the days are long since gone where you're banged up in an institution just because you thought about doing something. You know, I think it's very much particularly if it's more due to circumstances, we'll say, well, all hospitals are going to do is postpone the circumstances and probably get you into more debt. So what's the point in having you in hospital? We'll try and support you out of hospital. 
Um, so I think I think I would try and encourage them to say, well, actually, times have changed, and maybe think about it again. And you know, what's wrong with perhaps going down to A and E this evening and talking to someone? And you might want to go down with them and be an advocate. I mean, that's that's fine. Any other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very depressed, and he does go into. He, he describes in this really, really dark, dark places. Um, he's a, a born again Christian. Mm-hmm. Really knows his word, um, but he doesn't seem to matter. Like you say, whether he's in a relationship or out, mm-hmm. whether he's in work or out, mm-hmm. he still has these kind of deep depressions. Mm-hmm. And he, the way he describes it, is that he will um, fantasize about ways of taking his life. Yeah. So how? You know, how serious would you say that that, that kind of situation was, and, and what would you do with that? It comes over for ministry. Yeah. We've got a team that are ministering to, yeah. uh, in, for the spiritual side, but yeah. as a practical side, what would you? Yeah, so someone who's a, just for the tape, you know, someone who's a Christian who's seems to keep coming forward for prayer, seems to keep fantasizing with these things. It, it's always very hard to say in an, individu- in an individual case how serious someone is. I mean, from what you're saying, is it's been going on for a while, and he hasn't actually done anything about it, so statistically he's not very serious about it. Um, you know, I mean, it, uh, and I think, I think that the, the sort of things I'd be more interested in that case would be about not jumping every single time he shouts, considering where, whether prayer ministry is helpful or appropriate, particularly at the end of a service. You know, you may, you may want to say, Prayer ministry is available if you come to the church during the week. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to get all excited about this at the end of a service on Sunday. And also, you know, perhaps having a conversation with about how that makes you feel. And, you know, why is he telling you these things? Um, and I think sometimes you have to do be quite blunt with, with people who are um, stuck in a pattern of behavior that is not necessarily their fault. But the tactics they're using at the moment are causing a lot of distress for other people. And they don't seem aware of that and trying to have a conversation about that. Um, and also, you know, is, is, is prayer working? Now, you could say prayer is the thing that's keeping him going. Um, or you could say, well, actually, prayer's not doing anything. And what he actually needs to do is, 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 is talk in more detail with, with someone who's going to challenge him about some things. Um, so I think, you know, you, if, if he's never done anything, and has been coming to the church for years and years and years and has these black pits, you know, you can't jump every single time he says something because it's it's difficult. But th- there's other ways to be compassionate, I suppose is what I'm saying. It's got to be a mixture of compassion and also tough tough love as well at times. Mm. Any more questions? Yeah. Is the GP the only way into mental health, mm. national health service thing? Okay, so in terms of how you get in contact with the NHS if you need it, the GP is a good port of call. Particularly if the person's got a relationship with their GP, you may you often find that the person has been going to see their GP a bit more often recently for lots of other inconsequential reasons, like having their blood pressure checked or uh, you know to get some hay for medication or something. And you know you can say, well, why don't you go back to your GP and actually say what's actually the matter? Um, I think the difficulty then is that sometimes because GPs are hard pressed, they reach for the prescription pad, um, but they're a good port of call particularly if it's a more sensible GP. The, the other ways are A&E, but the problem with A&E is long waits, junior members of staff sometimes, not always the best place to go. So GP is probably as good as good a start as anywhere. Some places have you know, phone lines that you can phone up. I mean, we have a single point of access 0845 number for the whole of Keithley and Airedale, where I work, um, and anyone coming there any time of day. Um, but it depends on the... Depends really. So I mean, I'd probably say the GP is the best because they can kind of keep a tab on thing. And most GPs are pretty good. They won't do stuff the first day. They'll just say, "Look, why don't you come back and see me in a week?" And they'll make another appointment. And you know, I mean, the what with drug budgets and pharmaceutical budgets being what they are, they don't reach for the prescription pad first time round. So, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm going to do a quick session on sort of confidentiality and that kind of thing afterwards, so I'll, I'll mention that later. But I think, you know, the, the quick answer is you're a friend and you're a lay person, so 
I think you can just say to them, what do you expect me to do with that information? You know, just as I've got my cap hat on, doesn't mean I'm going to keep your secrets for you. You know, and I, I think I think sometimes people do ask you to do things that are just unreasonable. You know, you say, hang on, as, as a human being, I know you need to talk to someone, but I, I, I can't promise to do that. I'm not, you know, and I think it's the terms, I'm here to help with the debt counselling. I'm not making you promises about what I'm saying and what I'm not going to say, you know. Um, but I'll, I'll cover that a bit more later. Okay, what we've got next is my next little question is just a comfort break. Okay, so if you want to take a few minutes, um, the toilets are just through there. And should we come back about five past three, okay? Just five minutes for a comfort break. Grab a drink if you want. This is not a full coffee break, okay? <laughs>